The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Have you noticed that no matter how hard you try to release attachments, heal traumas, and change your life, you still feel as if you don't belong? There is a reason and a solution for this. Join award-winning actor, comedian, and best-selling author Kyle Cease and learn how to immerse yourself in a new way of being at From Lonely to Free, a weekend workshop May 24th to 26th at Omega Institute in Rhinebeck, New York. Learn more at eomega.org slash thrive. Welcome to Mental Health, Hope and Recovery. I'm Helen Sneed. And I'm Valerie Milburn. We both have fought and overcome severe chronic mental illnesses. Our podcast offers a unique approach to mental health conditions. We use practical skills and inspirational true stories of recovery. Our knowledge is up close and personal. Helen and I are your peers. We're not doctors, therapists, or social workers. We're not professionals, but we are experts. We are experts in our own lived experience with multiple mental health diagnoses and symptoms. Please join us on our journey. We live in recovery. So can you. This podcast does not provide medical advice. The information presented is not intended to be a substitute or relied upon as medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. The podcast is for informational purposes only. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health providers for any health-related questions you may have. Welcome to Episode 20, Borderline Personality Disorder, Myth and Fact. Today, we're going to explore and attempt to clarify the truth about Borderline Personality Disorder, or BPD. It's perhaps the most misunderstood reviled, and feared of psychiatric disorders. I have it, and I call it the mental illness that dare not speak its name. We'll offer three perspectives, one who has it, one who has had several intense and difficult relationships with people with BPD, and one who is an advocate who has taught hundreds of families and loved ones to deal with BPD. In our own ways, we are all experts, and on those who have it, and those who love and care for them. Now, here are our objectives. To provide background on the history, stigma, and current understanding of BPD. To explain unique aspects of BPD, its symptoms and behaviors. To examine treatment methods and outcomes for people with BPD. To explore BPD's impact on families and caregivers. To define the potential for recovery, changes in perception, and hope for those with BPD. We have a wonderful guest today, and Helen, you and I love it when we have a guest with us. Today, we have Eric Kunish joining us. Helen and I know Eric well as we volunteer with Eric through our work with the National Alliance on Mental Illness, Central Texas. Thank you, Valerie and Helen. It's just so great to be here with with my peers who have done so much for uh, mental health in our community. Well, Eric, we know that you are a retired paramedic and pharmaceutical rep. And Eric has been married for 49 years and has two adult children, a son, 43, and a daughter who is 40. 
First, I want to tell everybody about Eric's background in the area of borderline personality disorder. Eric is a volunteer with Family Connections and is going to tell us all about Family Connections later. But for now, I'll say it's an organization for friends and family of people with borderline personality disorder. Eric has taught the Family Connections class 14 times so far and helps Central Texas Family Connections leaders coordinate classes. He has led the local Family Connections support group for nine years, is on the Family Connections National Education Committee, and leads the National Family Connections Book Club. Now, Eric's background is a NAMI volunteer. He is team captain of a NAMI Central Texas walks team with the great name of Radical Acceptance. He's a presenter. I am on that team. That's right. Helen's a walk a radical acceptance person. Yeah, a walk star. Eric is also a presenter at law enforcement crisis intervention training. We do that together. He chairs the NAMI Central Texas Advocacy Committee, is on the NAMI Texas Policy Committee, and is a NAMI State Advocacy Network Committee member. And Eric, can you tell us a little about your family's history with borderline personality disorder? Yes, uh, I think. When you have family members, sometimes it you can kind of tell from the very beginning that there's something a little bit different. And other times you're you're kind of surprised. And we were on the latter part surprised. Uh, all seemed to be pretty good with uh, my my loved ones in the younger years and then teenage years. Then it gets to be tricky about what's the normal teenage behavior and what's beyond that. What's more problematic? Uh, at some point we. With our our daughter, we realized that there were some some things that could be um, challenging, and she was diagnosed at seventeen with depression, and then it was advanced to bipolar. Then in the next year is Graves' disease, which is a thyroid disease that affects mood, and then had some challenges like so many people trying to deal with pain and suffering had some substance abuse challenges, uh, and. Uh, in the late 20s, it seemed like she was hitting all the criteria of uh, nine for nine in the DSM for borderline personality disorder and had some uh, other things where the bipolar got, got into more uh, psychotic features, unfortunately. And she went through troubles of uh, some self-harm, suicidality and hospitalizations, et cetera. Uh, so it kind of hit us, you know, we were like uh, swimming in denial, perhaps like um, in the river of uh, Egypt called Nile or denial. And then we, we had it struck. So it, it hit us by surprise. And that was the beginning. Well, uh, Eric, uh, I also want to chime in and say I'm just so delighted that you're with us today um, because of your just vast knowledge of this this illness and experience with it. And so to begin with, what's in a name? I mean, many people and practitioners can't even agree on what borderline personality means. In the past, those with the condition were considered to be on the borderline between psychotic and neurotic presentation. They appeared to swing back and forth and to make matters more confusing, did not respond to the analytical treatment of the time. A personality disorder is defined by Dr. John Oldham, former president of the American Psychiatric Association, as two blocks of personality. Number one, temperament, inborn traits. 
And number two, character, shaped by the environment. There are extreme disturbances in four areas, identity, interpersonal functioning, impulse control, and regulation of emotions. The implications for BPD are far more complex, with a tremendous wave of prejudices against those suffering from it because they didn't respond to traditional therapy, and admittedly could be extremely difficult to treat in the face of the stigma, symptoms, and lack of understanding. And you know, even in the media and the entertainment world, people with BPD were just considered, you know, they're always ruthless and destructive and, uh, you know, occasionally bloodthirsty. I think of, uh, you know, the famous Glenn Close role in Fatal Attraction, who, you know, she was supposed to be a borderline. So this just, you could, you just were up against a, just such a, a wall of, uh, of, of prejudice. Um, the National Education Alliance for Borderline Personality Disorder, which is the great organization that has led the struggle to validate, define, and treat BPD, provides a sobering overview. The disorder was only included in the DSM, that's the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, was not included until 1980. The clinical diagnosis that became a judgment. Um, DBT and BPD is two decades behind in research, treatment options, and public education. Historically, it's been met with widespread misunderstanding and blatant stigma. And the people with BPD were deemed hopeless, untreatable, and to be passed on to another therapist as quickly as possible. Here are some statistics that illustrate the impact of borderline personality disorder on society. 5.9% of American adults have it. That's 14 million Americans, more than those with schizophrenia and bipolar disorder combined. 20% of inpatients in psychiatric hospitals have BPD. 10% of people in outpatient mental health treatment have BPD. Men and women are equally affected. Comorbidity, which is having more than one diagnosis, is common with BPD with substance abuse, chronic depression, PTSD, bipolar disorder, and eating disorders being some of the concurrent diagnoses. And here's a very sobering statistic. 10% of individuals with BPD die by suicide. So what causes BPD? A genetic predisposition, an environmental factor such as an invalidating environment, stressful or abusive childhood, or trauma increases the risk. So it's nature and nurture. Dr. Blaise Aguirre of Harvard University and McLean Hospital states it's 60% genetic, 40% environmental stressors. Well, it's, uh, uh, it's, it's, it has a profound impact on our, our nation, whether people know about it or not, just due to the sheer numbers. Um, now, there are current scientific advancements in understanding BPD in the brain, and they are very exciting. Um, what they might, you know, suggest about more treatment someday. Now, what I'm going to explain is from Dr. Anthony Ruoco of Montreal University, who is a a major, major uh, cutting-edge researcher. He finds that emotional dysregulation is the core symptom of BPD, and it results in the other symptoms that we'll explore next. His research explains what happens in the brain of a person with BPD. Okay, 
very simple. The limbic system is the primitive region of the brain, and within it, the amygdala responds to fear and emotion. In BPD, the amygdala overreacts to certain emotions, and this causes extreme emotional hyperarousal. Okay, now the more sophisticated part of the brain is the prefrontal cortex, which is responsible for regulating emotion in the brain. But in BPD uh, individuals, their brains, it appears to be significantly underactive. So this creates the inability to control or manage emotions, and that's called emotional dysregulation. In other words, the breaks in the brain are not working. Now, the pain and suffering caused by this condition drive the individual to try to stop the pain with extreme behaviors and symptoms, which we're going to talk about in a minute. But Eric, I wanted to ask you, um, we talked, we've mentioned stigma, and I'm wondering, have you seen changes in the perception of BPD over the years in the psychiatric field or in the general public or just anywhere? Yes, Helen. Fortunately, I have. I think we have a long way to go, but in the psychiatric field, definitely that most in the know know that there are effective treatments of some of them of dialectical behavior therapy, or we call it DBT, mentalization, of GPM, which is general psychiatric um, care, uh, transference therapy and schema therapy. Uh, some therapists use these techniques and others refer to others. Uh, and people with BPD need people, including clinicians, who don't abandon them. And clinicians using such treatments, such as DPT, know that. And the general public, uh, better, more about it, like there's still some of the <laughs> fatal attraction type things that we've uh, heard about, but more people are in the know that there are more treatments and there's still lots of work to be done in knowledge deserts, but we're getting better with the public. Okay, well, that's very encouraging because I think that, as we've known, public opinion can be so important if you just even look at the change in how people regard something like depression now. You know, it's just so much more accepted, uh, which we hope someday for um, for for uh, borderline personality disorder. But talking about trying to deal with it. Uh, Valerie has really done research on the symptoms and the behaviors uh, that this illness consent can engender in an individual, I know firsthand. So Valerie, tell us about some of this. I want to start with a quote by Marsha Linehan, who about 15 years ago outed herself as having BPD. And Marsha Linehan is the creator of one of the most successful treatment methods, dialectical behavior therapy. And she was giving a speech and talked about herself having borderline personality disorder. And she once said, people with BPD are like people with third degree burns over 70% of their bodies. Lacking emotional scale skin, they feel agony at the slightest touch or movement. And that really helped me understand the symptoms and the behaviors. So let's look at some of these symptoms and behaviors. They engender, people with BPD engender through emotional dysregulation and acute suffering. And again, we get this list of BPD symptoms from Dr. Blaise Aguirre. These symptoms include fear of abandonment, 
impulsivity, which is through substance abuse, high-risk sexual behavior, or eating disorders. Another symptom is anger, which can be sudden outburst or the inability to express anger at all. Other symptoms include bodily self-harm, suicidal ideation, chaotic, volatile relationships, black and white thinking, unstable identity, paranoia, and feelings of emptiness, loneliness, and need. Now, Helen, you're going to talk about some of these symptoms as you're now going to share your personal battle and fight to live in recovery with BPD. Well, thank you, Valerie. Yes, I'm, I'm going to uh, uh, do that as best I can, although some of it is really sort of uh, so mind-boggling uh, in its intensity or whatever that it can be, it can be a hard story to tell, but I'm going to try. Um, to begin with, I'm a writer, and I have relied on words my entire life. It's just a basic form of communication. But the diagnosis of BPD outstripped my ability to describe it with language. But there's a photograph from the Vietnam War, a little girl running down a dirt road straight into the camera. She is naked, her little face contorted with agony and terror. She is screaming. There are other people around her, but they're not even paying attention. She is utterly alone. I call her the burning girl. And at its very worst, this is what BPD feels like to me. Burning, burning, burning all alone. I already had four other diagnoses, bipolar, anorexia, bulimia, clinical depression, and PTSD, but nothing prepared me for the stigma and animosity towards BPD. It is a mongrel diagnosis, as if overnight I had turned into a mad dog. You know, I was sly, manipulative, rageful, irrational, had no credibility, And I was treated with a surprising lack of compassion or hope from professionals. It was as if I had been thrown on the trash heap. And my main doctor was a PTSD specialist. You know, that's post-traumatic stress disorder. So she was all about trauma. Um, But she wouldn't even use the term borderline. Um, She said it was too pejorative, which it was. But she maintained that BPD was so like PTSD There was no need to deal with it separately. And only later in working with BPD specialists and using their techniques, did I come to see the truth. Now, comorbidity, this co-occurring illnesses, is common with BPD. And each illness has its similarities and each is unique. So sorting through them can be a real uphill task. But I became aware of the fact that for me, Borderline personality disorder was the underlying condition, and all the other illnesses sprang from my inability to regulate my hideous thoughts and emotions that left me in a state of emotional agony for months on end. Now, I was lucky to live in New York City, very lucky. Um, Professionals and cutting-edge techniques were available to me, and although I beggared myself, I could pay for treatment most of the time. However, my condition was so complex that I was turned away from the outpatient program at Bellevue Hospital. Now, most people have heard of Bellevue. It was considered to be the most notorious lunatic asylum uh, of its time in America. So um, I was uh, uh, there and the head of the program told me none too kindly 
that I was too sick for his staff and trainees to handle. Surely you understand, Helen, the well-being of my trainees must come first. Yes, it must. But to be deemed too sick for Bellevue, I, I, it, it was one of the low points for me. I, I almost killed myself that night. It was so bad. But I think what Valerie was talking about earlier is that symptoms tell the tale. And in certain areas, my symptoms were atypical for BPD. To begin with, I was literally incapable of expressing anger toward another person. So I was well-behaved in public and had many friends and colleagues. I only unleashed my fury and despair on myself alone in my New York apartment. Now, one of the most intense symptoms was self-injury. And I want to talk about it because so few, few people understand why a person does it. And there's this need to want people to, to understand. Yet I'm very afraid of telling the truth about my condition because I worry that I'm going to trigger someone or sound as if cutting was an acceptable behavior. So here's a warning. Self-injury is the most destructive, reprehensible action I have ever experienced, and I wouldn't wish it on my worst enemy. Here's how it happened to me. I was so distraught that I cut daily for weeks on end. I cut by day because it helped me to control my emotions enough to get out of my apartment. And by night, it helped me regulate the pain and solitude and kept me from killing myself. Now, no one wants to act this way. I mean, I knew that my symptoms were grotesque and inconceivable, but there's a quote from Proust that helps explain it. He said, to wisdom and kindness, we make promises. Pain, we obey. So when I was out of control, I was obeying excruciating pain and trying to stop it as best I knew how. It's just that nothing, nothing worked. I did make a number of suicide attempts um, because it, it just looked like the only way out. Um, but I want to say here, cutting is not a form of manipulation. It is a form of communication, an attempt to be understood. I would look at my hidden disfigured arm and know that I had the means to express the agony. This is what it feels like. I, ne I never showed it to anyone, but this is, I had that truth. I was wearing it on my body. I would never have had a chance to recover until I gave up cutting. It was the hardest thing I've ever had to do. Self-injury is a diabolical symptom because it's never the answer to suffering. It only prolongs it. My other chief symptoms were impossible to control for years. Eating disorders escalated wildly. A major factor was my terrifying lack of consistent or positive identity. Underneath it all, I had no idea who I was. I hated myself unrelentingly. It never stopped, and it ran like poison through my veins into my brain. Although I developed a strong and convincing public persona, to me, it was just a lie that others might discover at any moment, and I would be ridiculed and abandoned. My fear of abandonment was so acute that several doctors asked me if I had actually ever been left anywhere in my childhood, which I hadn't. So I should say here that I discovered my own cure for fear of abandonment. And here's what it is. Leave first. 
which I practiced all my life, all, especially my adult life, you know, when I could, you know, jobs, romance, opportunities. I left before I could be found out to be a fraud and a repulsive, flawed person. So after years of decay and worsening illnesses, my PTSD doctor told me I was hopelessly sick, I would never recover, and I would never work again. Well, I was so shocked. I told her, I will devote the rest of my life to proving you wrong. Our therapeutic relationship ended so horribly that it was another time when I almost killed myself. But one thing kept me alive, dialectical behavior therapy, DBT. It was the turning point. I guess you could say that I used it hourly until I could find a DBT therapist and slowly made tremendous progress toward recovery. I joined a gym and completely changed my diet and eating habits. This resulted in physical strength and the loss of 90 pounds. I found a new psychiatrist who prescribed a new medication that began to work within days. It was a miracle. And like DBT, it helped me to control the excessive emotions that had driven me all my days. And I could get the work done in therapy finally. Now, as I've said, I was lucky. I enrolled in a unique DBT job training program, brilliantly designed and taught exclusively for people with borderline personality disorder. It was a joy. First of all, I had a destination. I had structure. And I got to work with and mentor my peers in our classes. And it was these professionals who ran the program who gave me my first opportunity to speak publicly at high-profile events about my BPD story. Now, another real turning point for me. For the first time in a decade, I felt like my old self again. And this led to more activities, more action, volunteer work, and my creation of a play that was produced off-Broadway and very well received. But the most far-reaching and priceless advancement came in my relationships. I began to reconnect with my old friends, make new ones, and through their love and generosity was swept back into the world again. Somehow, I had stumbled and fought my way into a life of meaning, fulfillment, and the first happiness I had ever known. So that is my story. But I wish you could see the extraordinary people I met along the way. Those of us who used to be called borderlines. If you could see the striving of these men and women, the desire to work, participate, contribute, laugh and love, to live life fully out in the community, to belong. These are my people. And if they can survive BPD, just think what they could give the world. Oh, Helen, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having the, the vulnerability and the bravery to share your journey. I, I know you've helped so many people today by doing so. And I want to comment on something that must have been so difficult to share. And that's your journey with self-injury. For years, I carried my own shame because of my battle with self-injury. And your ability to communicate with me about your battle over the years has really helped me heal. So thank you again for your bravery and your vulnerability. 
for sharing with me over the years and for sharing today because I know you have really helped people. Well, Valerie, if I've helped you, then I'm uh, uh, I'm I'm a, I'm a happy woman because it's a it's a tough one, you know. Well, and again, getting rid of the shame and the guilt and the and the need for it that was you know this this misguided need. But um, I'm uh, thank you very much for what you said. I um, what what we'd like to do is. Um, and I'm, this is where I'm going to really rely on Eric in a minute. Um, we want to now examine the treatment methods and outcomes for people with BPD. You know, so we've talked about what it is and how it affects people. But so what can be done? And I found out very interesting in my research that the Mayo Clinic, the National Education Alliance for Borderline Personality Disorder and the National Alliance on Mental Illness, NAMI, had virtually the same criteria for treatment methods. So it looks right now, I know they're, they're probably groundbreaking people in the field, but I was very pleased to see this you know, consensus. Now, to begin with, the importance of the right diagnosis can't be overstated. I mean, Eric mentioned it earlier, BPD can be misdiagnosed for years. I mean, for me, it was for, it was for decades. Um, so, this leads to the fact that you need specialized treatment to get results. Uh, I think that uh, again, we're going to talk about this more, but uh, but that just that you need the 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 people, the practitioners do need some sort of training and understanding of the illness and the people that have it. Um, it's also important to get treatment for the other co-occurring disorders such as depression, substance of misuse, eating disorders. But this all again, it's it's tall order, this, this illness. And uh, um, we, I just am happy to see these treatment methods that are giving people so much better opportunities. There, there's a step before recovery that I had never paid much attention to until BPD, and that is remission. And that's sort of the cessation of symptoms for a period of time where they may not disappear entirely, but there's 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 a, they're muted and they're and they're you know they're few and far between, and that must happen really before you can get into recovery, which means you know living a meaningful life. So here are some specific treatment methods for BPD. Um, Eric mentioned them before, and we are not going to be able to describe all of them, but there's obviously psychotherapy, talk therapy, and a trusting therapeutic relationship, I believe, is the fundamental building block of treatment. Um, dialectical behavior therapy, DBT, uh, good general or good psychiatric management. This is created by Dr. John Gunderson, who is also out of Harvard and McLean, and has was, he's passed away, but he was one of the great, great pioneers uh, of borderline personality disorder. So it's a very interesting uh, way that he's come to put together the treatment. Um, then we've got uh, uh, schema-focused therapy, mentalization-based therapy, transference-focused psychotherapy. Now, and, and there are others, um, but today um, we're going to examine DBT uh, because Eric uh, is a real expert and, and I, you know, again, it saved my life. So, Eric, just to start off with, how do you explain DBT to people when they ask you about it for the first time? Oh, <laughs> DBT in short, wow. Uh, it's a way of combining 
but it's kind of a, well, it's dialectic. It's like two apparent opposites. Um, like you're trying to establish change, but you have to have acceptance first and you combine them. It's uh, as far as emotional, it's kind of like they have a f- phrase that we have emotion mind, we have rational mind, and a goal is to combine those to wise mind, to having what apparently seems to be opposites, to combine them together. And um, Marsha Linehan, you know, her first thought, she thought that cognitive behavioral therapy was going to, you know, just whip people up and do all all fine. And it's done well for a lot of people, but not with our people. And so um, then she realized that didn't work. So she, you know, got in the other aspect of mindfulness and um, acceptance. She uh, was thinking people have to be mindful to be non-judgmental, to look at things as they are in the present moment. And from there, they can go to acceptance and it is what it is. And at that point, try to do some change and have some validation. And somewhere down the road, maybe do the problem solving or problem management. I mean, with our, our, our class, Family Connections is basically DBT light. I mean, I really think it is. And uh, only at the end do we get to that. And it still may be uh, a management not solving. And most of the people who have loved ones with BPD, we want to fix it. We want to just quickly put that back to the um, where they were before there was you know, a disaster in our minds, whatever. We want to be fixers and we need to uh, kind of learn ourselves and, and improve our relationships and understand the, the person's of pain and what's going on much more than we, we do initially. You know, when I first heard about it, the person that told me this, uh, this definition has stuck with me ever since. She said, it teaches you dozens of skills to overcome tidal waves of hideous emotions and thoughts. And so that's, I guess, how I've always looked at it again is, is I, I, the skills, you know, are what, uh, I mean, you have to get to them and you have to do then. And, and I did read this great quote from Marshall Linehan recently, which she said, she said that uh, um, the way out of hell is acceptance. Yes. And so acceptance and mindfulness, I know, are the two basic uh, uh, tenets. But I always uh, thought that there were there were these four basic components, mindfulness, which you talked about, distress tolerance interpersonal effectiveness and emotion regulation were sort of the four basic uh, areas of, of, uh, of, well, almost of study since, you know, I, when I had DBT, it was really more like a class or something yes. initially. Um, and also here's an astonishing figure that I wanted to ask you if you've heard this, 77% of participants no longer met the criteria for borderline personality disorder after DBT treatment. So I uh, again I don't know how much treatment they they're talking about there but I just I just picked this up in one, you know one of the uh some one of the research uh, uh things that I was using but have you heard that it's that it's that I mean how effective have you found it to be I've found it Helen to be in that range I'd heard 70% and you know kind of in that territory of course there's the quality of 70% if you, 
if they're treated, if the, uh, if the person follows through and all, and, and sometimes it takes some some time. Uh, I, I think maybe in one of the conversations when you spoke to one of our classes, and by the way, sometimes they, um, when we were lucky to have you, they'd say that's the best part of the class. Um, when you said, oh, thank first, you. Yeah, it's honest, definitely. And the first time around, it didn't really hit you. And it didn't really hit me until close to the course, to the end, till I got radical acceptance thing, uh, or it hit me like this. We're not going to just go back to the way we thought things were going to be, that we have recovery can happen, but it's going to take some um, time and it's going to be different. And we need to, as people that love you, uh, as a person with BPD, we need to do the same thing as far as improve our knowledge, like on DBT, um, to improve our relationship skills, to get it, to understand you better and to as we like to say in our class, to not make it worse. You know, some of the the other methods um, are uh, group therapy, which uh, I have I found to be very beneficial if the group leader was trained in BPD, because it can, you know, again, it gets emotions and get pretty high and you need to have someone trained to know how to deal with that uh, medication. I'd be interested to know what you think of it, because, you know, there's not one designated um, for for borderline personality disorder, but I have found it extremely helpful uh, with sort of the sidebars of it. Do you know what I mean? Like insomnia and it helps with depression and and it takes the edge off some of the extreme symptoms. But what, what do you, how do you feel about medication? Uh, definitely that's important. They say uh, BPD rarely stands alone. And I think sidebars is a good example. It, it helps some of the other things that's going on. So things like DBT or mentalization can do their work for them. And I know a lot of people, a lot of stories that are kind of like yours, the first time the person didn't uh, go for it. My my loved one, she took DBT, the, the group, four or five different times, but she took enough. And each time it's almost like she took the whole class and, and we talk DBT back and forth and it works for other things that are not just Great. your other symptoms. And uh, I think um, Valerie is talking about Blaise Aguirre. He's got a book, DBT for Dummies, and he's on MSNBC. He basically said he thinks that works for everybody, whereas I like to say in tongue-in-cheek, you should put it in the drinking water. It's, it's that good. And I've had you know people in class go like, well, somebody with DB, um, BPD has lots of pain and suffering. And if this works for them, for, for people that don't have it, it's, I found that it's easier in my workplace or with, with other people I, I know that I, I deal with. So uh, I think that I think it should be taught in every high school in America. DBT for Because it just teaches it, you know, how to regulate your emotions and get on with people and all good things, all good things. Yes, yes. I'm a little biased. That's a good bias, I think. You're, you're accurate. There's <laughs> <laughs> um, some other things uh, with uh, a healthy lifestyle, you know, diet, exercise, and sleep, which I think we all know are terribly important. Hospitalization. Now, you know, as far as I know, there's not a hospital that specializes in, uh, in, in borderline personality disorder, and if there is, there's not enough of them. But I... I think it's helpful in extreme instances. It was for me. Um, if someone's really out of control with a self-injury, 
um, or suicidal, I think that the hospital becomes uh, absolutely necessary. Um, and then uh, here's something, Eric, that you contribute to uh, immeasurably, which is informed and educated caregivers and relationships. Because I just think people without informed uh, caregivers uh, and, and loved ones, they, they just, I don't know how they can get through it. So did you find that, uh, that, that, that lifestyle, that any of those things were, were helpful in terms of, you know, exercise and, and, uh, and, and eating properly and sleeping enough and all that? Did, did you, do you think that people can use that effectively? Sure. I think having a, a regular routine that's a healthy routine. I mean, there's acronyms um, like uh, SNAP, sleep, nutrition, activity, people, like don't get um, you know, off into the corner. Uh, and there's um, you know, various things. I think the, the lifestyle is very important and to have people in your environment that can validate what you're doing. Okay. Well, where do you think, or can you tell us where people, you know, people who are, are fighting BPD, where can they reach out? I mean, there's, you know, the, the big organizations, you know, uh, NAMI and the NEA BPD. And, but do you know of places, other places that they can, they can go for, for help? Well, or just to get I, I, just to get advice, or you know, whatever. Well, I mean, I see big picture ones and little ones as far as advice is to find therapists to treat BPD and want to treat BPD. I mean, I, I still know right. a few people who haven't been active uh, as therapists, and they go like, "No, oh, no way." Um, would I? There's, they're hopeless and all. So you don't want somebody that's a therapist like that. That you want people that understand BPD and will not abandon the person and uh, will refer if they don't know BPD as much to somebody to do. Like there's you know, DBT associates in various towns, uh, groups of them, and there's mentalization. There's a couple good uh, people to teach the family connections class to do mentalization. And we're, we're fortunate we have several therapists that do that. Um, but find people that believe in um, the, the treatment and encourage your loved ones when possible. Take something like family connections. That now that we have Zoom, it's more available. Uh, and read some of the, the, the good books. Alan Frusetti was worked under Marshall Linehan, and he, he does, he kind of created the family connections program with Perry Hoffman that, that we both know who's unfortunately she's she's passed but she was wonderful but she um, was yeah she she was it, um, just and now there's more telehealth so there's going to be less hopefully less treatment deserts for the people with BPD and also um, their loved ones have more access to read and attend places that uh, will help Okay, well, that's good to know. And, you know, one thing that I wanted to mention, uh, and I believe it's been launched, and it, it and I think, Valerie, you know about this, is the, the new suicide helpline, which is 988, right? Yes, right. Yeah, you guys know about it. I think it just was launched a week or so back or something. It's really new, but, you know, it's again, it's like 911, but if you have any questions about suicide, if you're feeling that way, 
you can get through immediately to a professional, right? Right. It's a mental health you, crisis if you, line. If you have a mental health yeah. emergency, um, if you have a physical emer- health emergency, you dial 911. And now if you have a mental health emergency, a crisis of any sort that's mental health related, you dial 988. And as advocates, uh, we should probably keep on working on that. That's only the good beginning of 988, and it needs to be spread out so people use it more. Yes, because this is just the beginning. And it took a lot of work. Uh, I know I wrote letters to uh, my uh, representatives, uh, federal representatives, and a lot of us wrote a lot of letters. And it took a lot of work to get 988 passed, the 988 legislation passed. Yes. Have you noticed that no matter how hard you try to release attachments, heal traumas, and change your life, you still feel as if you don't belong? There is a reason and a solution for this. Join award-winning actor, comedian, and best-selling author Kyle Cease and learn how to immerse yourself in a new way of being at From Lonely to Free, a weekend workshop May 24th to 26th at Omega Institute in Rhinebeck, New York. Learn more at eomega.org slash thrive. Well, I think um, now we get to we're going to look at the flip side of the of the coin, and that is uh, the impact that this illness, this disorder has on families and caregivers. And I have to say that I don't know of any other mental disorder where there is so much support and and uh, and, and well, almost treatment available for the people who are on the other receiving end of it, because it, it is so difficult. So now, Valerie, uh, do you want to tell us about, about some of this? Because it, it is, uh, uh, it's, I, I can see how it would help someone tremendously to be educated and to have a support in this area if they had a loved one. Yes. Eric and I are going to take this on, looking at the impact on families and caregivers. Um, people who are in a relationship with someone who lives with um, borderline personality disorder. And I have firsthand lived experience with bipolar disorder, anxiety disorder, post-traumatic stress disorder, and substance use disorder. Now those diagnoses are my own journey with mental illness and my fight to live in recovery. But my experience with BPD is different. This experience is through several intense, difficult relationships with other people people who live with BPD, my relationships with them. And I've been affected deeply by several people who live with BPD. And I have compassion, grief, and scars associated with these relationships. And preparing for this episode has been both difficult and healing, very healing. But I've had to remember some traumatic times. I've also found more compassion for and understanding of those people, loved ones, people I care for, um, those I've had relationships with. And one of the most important things I learned is summed up in a quote from Paul Mason, the author of Stop Walking on Eggshells, Taking Your Life Back When Someone You Care About Has Borderline Personality Disorder. And the quote is, the behaviors you witness in the person you love are usually unconscious. They're designed to shield the person from intense emotional pain, not to hurt you. This person will help this knowledge will help you separate the person from their disease. And this quote has helped me tremendously. And 
and all the things we've just heard have really helped me a lot. And there's another quote that I want to get both Eric and Helen, both of your comments on. And it it builds on, Helen, what you said earlier about the research of um, the brain research, the scientific research. And it, the quote is also from Mason. And it says, it's common to struggle to understand the thoughts, feelings, and behaviors of someone with, with BPD. Because we assume someone with BPD processes thoughts and feelings the way we do. They simply don't. Comments on that from both of you? Well, I think there's a, from another book, uh, Loving Somebody with BPD, um, Sherry Manning, she talks about, she talks about SeaWorld and um, uh, dolphins and that dolphins in Houston, for example, they may learn their skills, training, whatever. But then if you move them to San Antonio, they don't have the skills in that location that you have to teach them all over. And she says, in some ways, the person with BPD has seemingly good skills somewhere, like maybe in the workplace or maybe in their home, but the other way around, they, they don't. And people just, I mean, people that don't understand it will go, uh, people just, you, you, you have this figured out. That's another thing where you get stigmatized with manipulation, and it's not manipulation. They, they can't always transfer one skill to another environment. And uh, it gets me as far as um, Marshall Linehan said, by definition, manipulation is artful deceit. And the person, people are in so much pain, it's more like they're in desperation. Uh, and they're, so it's like you feel like you're, you feel more like you're being pushed rather than manipulated in, in my mind. And there's a good reason why the people are so desperate because of the pain they have. And uh, I say that and I go, uh, look, look at Helen and, and my loved one, other people. I don't know the pain, but I believe it, it's really there. Mm-hmm. Well, Helen, did you have anything you wanted to say about that? Well, I have a, a, a tremendous ambivalence because part of me immediately bristles and becomes defensive. You know, it's because I want to go, but I was so well behaved. How can you, how can you say this? But, but I do think, and especially uh, having read what, um, uh, I can't think of the name, the, the, the researcher in, in Canada Mm -hmm. has learned Dr. Ruoko. um, I, I do think that my are my brain and my emotions just respond differently to the same stimulus that that someone else does. So yes, I have to. I guess I have to agree with it, but it, it's it's not easy. No, it's not easy. But for me, it was very helpful. I mean, I know my brain doesn't function the same because I have bipolar disorder, and it just helped me to understand that we go about things, uh, we look at things differently because of who we are. No matter what our differences are. And that just helped me a lot. And then there was another quote that I found very, um, that brought me to a lot of compassion. And this one's from Rachel Ryland. And she wrote a book called Get Me Out of Here, My Recovery from Borderline Personality Disorder. And this is her quote. I always had this insatiable hunger for something I couldn't define, except to call it the bottomless pit of need. 
something that made me scared to get close to anybody for fear they'd discover I was rotten and disturbed. And this just really helped me understand how much I wanted to learn these skills I'm about to talk about. And Eric, I'm going to share some tools and skills for having a supportive relationship with someone who lives with BPD. And you already talked about how important it is to develop a better relationship and learn these skills and tools. So as a starting place, could you share some of the things you have found most challenging for families and caregivers over the years you've done this work? I think the challenge uh, initially is, again, they want to, uh, we want to fix it. We don't understand. We we want to just go from uh, where they are to back where they we think that they should be. We, we were shooting, coulda, woulda, shooting on people. And uh, so that's a common thing. And, and so that's why I, Marshall Linehan says, you've got to get to mindfulness to just break it down to present moment, be non-judgmental, and then slowly work, build up to try to understand. Uh, and we have our own mistakes that we make. We don't, we don't understand. And then uh, we slowly get better. Uh, like when I'm doing a class, I say, uh, of all the mistakes you've made, I've either made them or I've thought about them and I continue to make them. What helps is, um, by practice, I catch them a little quicker than I used to, and that I have to assume that I'm still going to be an imperfect person, kind of like Renee Brown's gift of imperfection. I, I don't always find it a gift, but I have to admit that, yeah, I screwed up and I need to try to repair. And uh, that's that's kind of where I, I, I go on that, on the tools, is using the tools trying to validate, and when you invalidate, uh, try to go back. They say uh, you have to validate three times before you say anything that's going to be possibly controversy, controversial if you're going to uh, step ahead. So those are some of the things on the tools challenges. That's a good tool. Can I ask a question? Yeah. Eric, you said, are you saying that one of the major problems for for families is that they because they don't understand it initially, they just want to, you said saying, you know, we all want to wave a wand, you know, right. go back to, you know what I mean? And go back to the way things were. So it sounds like that the, one of the first things for them is acceptance. Is that right? That, that they have to learn acceptance. Yeah. I'd say to that be, that's not going to happen, you know? Yeah. I'd say it's like nuance, like, like I'm, I'm going to hide behind Marsha Linan's wisdom. She's, you know, says, be mindful and kind of, you know, getting rid of all your preconceptions. And then at that point, you can go to that next step, acceptance. And you have to have acceptance before you get the change. So I'm agreeing that I, I think she would say, you know, go back to the very, be, be, be the Buddha as best as you can. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, as best as we can. Well, there's a wonderful book called The Essential Family Guide to Borderline Personality Disorder by Randy Krieger. And um, there's some tools in this book that are for taking good care of ourselves in a relationship with someone who has BPD. But these are just great tools for taking care of ourselves in general. Uh, They're common sense. They're things I need to do all the time. And, And I'll just run through them. 
and they are to obtain support and find community. And I think we've given some examples of how to do that, particularly through the Family Connections class, to get a handle on our own emotions, to practice mindfulness, which we've talked about, to have a sense of humor, to focus on our own wellness. Another one is to uncover what keeps us feeling stuck. I need to uncover what keeps me stuck by owning my own choices, um, by helping without rescuing. That's a very important thing for me to do and to learn to handle fear and obligation and guilt. Also to learn to communicate, to be heard, always putting safety first, to learn active listening skills, to understand nonverbal communication and to validate, as you just said, Eric. And the other one is to reinforce the right behaviors. And that's something I have tried to do. Uh, Eric, other uh, comments on the tools I just listed? Any others you want to throw in? Well, those, those are tools. And uh, that acceptance of your, both of you were talking and asked me about, that's huge. Uh, we talk about radical acceptance of my class last night. We we were hitting that. That's one of the hardest um, hardest skills. It's an important skill. And we have to keep turning our mind back to it and get away from the if only, if only, and, and getting off the path. And uh, that's one of the reasons why Marshall and I realized this, uh, just trying to change the behavior wasn't going to do it. He had to get into the acceptance and then go from there and validate and eventually problem solve or build a life worth living, as she said in her memoir, the title of it. Mm-hmm. And another thing I found out in my research is something, Eric, you already brought up, and that the most important thing is knowledge, that all the experts agree that the first thing to do to make um, relationships strong is to get educated on the disorder um, itself, to learn about BPD, because it's impossible to know how to support someone lives with any type of a disorder or how to take care of yourself while doing so without first understanding it. And the other advice I found very helpful is that we, we need to give up the notion that we can, should, or will change someone else. And I found that letting go of this belief gave me the power that is truly mine, the power to change myself. And this is a priceless power and freedom. So I just want to reiterate the ideas that I found most important in self-care from the research I did, and it was to keep a sense of humor, to join a support group, find a friend or family member who will support you. And Eric, you talked a lot about ways to do that. And most importantly, celebrate small steps in the right direction and appreciate the things you enjoy about the people in your life, people who live with borderline personality disorder and all the people in our lives. So what do you think, Eric, about any of these strategies for self-care in relationships with someone who has BPD or any other self-care strategies, relationship strategies I haven't mentioned? Oh, I I think you've covered a whole lot. And we have um, little cards sometimes remind us of, of these things and, uh, we used to hand them out in classes. Now that we're doing virtual, we're not doing it. But some things about rights of relatives, basic assumptions, and things like uh, interpret things in the most possible way or benign interpretation. And there is no one absolute truth. And trying to do the best you can in the moment and 
that's not always going to be perfect. And everyone needs to try harder. And sometimes harder means like what you said, it could be a small thing. It could be baby steps or maybe slower. So, yeah, I mean, I'm just kind of augmenting, I think, what, what you're saying, Valerie. Well, thanks. I think I think we've given some pretty good tips. And there's just a, one more area of communication strategies and skills that I wanted to hit on. And these are just excellent communication strategies and skills in general. And I, I use these in my relationships. Um, I use some of these with my husband all the time. One is to be aware of timing and uh, having a communication to postpone conversations to calmer times, which is something I've learned to do in all my communication. Don't get drawn into another person's extreme reactions and prepare for discussions. I've been known to actually write notes before I have a difficult discussion with anybody. Eric, you talked about validation and also, while it's reasonable to ask someone to change their behavior, it's not reasonable to tell someone how they should feel. And I just want to add that I wish I had known and implemented these skills and strategies and tools in my past relationships with people in my life who have BPD, but my continued and future relationships will be healthier and less tumultuous now that I know these skills and I desperately want this um, improvement in my relationships. Sounds very good, Valerie. Thank you. Helen, you're going to take us into our last objective, which is to define the potentials for recovery and the changes in perception and, and the hope we have in this area. Yes, I, uh, again, uh, have, uh, this is, uh, we love this. This is our positive section. And despite all the sort of, you know, uh, grim statistics and whatever that we've gone over today, um, there there is reason. To, I mean, if you have to have, uh, borderline personality disorder, this is the time to have it because there are increasing options and increasing help out there. So to define the potential for recovery and the changes in perception, and then just to look at, you know, so where do we find our hope? Um, I just jotted out a couple. Um, the potential for recovery and changes in perception are like the chicken and the egg. You know, one that you can't do without, one, can't do one without the other and they need each other. I don't really know which one came first. Um, here's one. There are brilliant, compassionate, committed professionals who have joined the battle. And there are more of them coming in. There are young researchers that are coming in that because, you know, for well, for several decades, people just said they're hopelessly sick. Uh, you know, the, the, the just don't, you, they, they don't respond to treatment. So why even do research, you know? And now it's just a whole new day with that. Um, there is a wider understanding in the psychiatric field that BPD is treatable and recovery is possible. Um, ways to go, but but uh, but at least it, you know, it's getting out there. Um, here's an exciting one: research, science, neurobiology are all making incredible advancements and are making up for lost time. Again, the lost decades, uh, the, and, and there's just the most the most fascinating stuff is coming down the pike. Um, and here's a really important one, I think, that gives me such uh, the potential for recovery almost lies for me in this this next uh, bullet. DBT and other treatment methods put the power for recovery in the hands of the patient. You know, you can practice discipline and autonomy in the face of the greatest suffering and you can do it on your own. And so having that 
all those skills that I use without without even thinking, without even blinking um, in my life now, um, it allowed me to save myself, to save my own life. And that really is the point, you know, because you can't just continue to cling to others. You have to be able to step out and take charge and have agency. And that's what that's one of the things that gives me the most hope. And so I think that the the hope comes from the belief that BPD can be overcome. They're proving it now. We're seeing it. You see, I'm, I'm sitting here talking to you guys, you know, um, it's not a life sentence. So, Eric, what? What advice do you have for people who are fighting uh, BPD today, uh, you know, in terms of, 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 of optimistic, and, you know, uh, things to tell them about how they, you know, why, they, why, they, why should they keep fighting? Well, some of the things we've already talked about, like you were talking about 77 to 70% uh, recovery with treatment. There's lots of research on DBT about that. There's some on mentalization and some of the other things have proven to be effective. So there's, you know, lots of things um, going forward and uh, there's more skills like other people can be uh, like their family members can get on board as far as reinforcing some of the good things um, going ahead and just some of those things that we've talked about and one of the things you say at the end of your podcast sometimes, oh, I'm getting ahead of myself, but I, I love the onward. So I'm sorry, it's spoiler alert there. <laughs> uh, keep on going. I think um, Churchill said something, if you're going through hell, um, don't stop, don't be stuck in miserable uh, feelings, just keep on going. And keep going. It's looking better and better the more people know and the more um, more we refine our DPT and other skills. Um, is What would you say uh, gives you the most hope? This, just now, as you're as sort of as we're just talking here, is there one thing you can identify? Um, I think that the skills. Uh, and the skills work with other disease states because we have uh, our people often have other disease states, uh, distress tolerance skills with, with my loved one. She's got other things that are really scary and kind of like the bipolar voices type things and, and find some of these skills. They they work, too. So there's um, in other places and just um, I think that gives me the hope and maybe number one, what gives me the most hope is people like Valerie and you, you particularly as far as the BPD that you've uh, you've been working so hard and you've done so much volunteer work for the rest of us. You're you're kind of like Marsha Linehan that decided that she wanted to go back in the hell and pull some other people out. You've done it. Well, thank you. Thank you. I guess I would should just flip that very quickly and say that you know it's you you kind of brought me into this whole thing and uh working with with your family connections and uh and and you're including me in that and treating me like a, a, a rational person instead of you know some crazy woman uh just made all the difference in the world to me and uh and that's the kind of treatment that i hope for everyone who has this this illness 
And we know Valerie's one. We know Valerie's perfect. So, (laughs) (laughs) well, if you're crazy, so is Martin uh, Marshall Linehan. We may need some more crazy people to just keep on going onward. Okay. Well, I think, uh, like I said, we have said earlier when we were talking about doing this podcast together, we have a mutual admiration society going among the three of us. (laughs) I think we all work really hard to. make uh, living with a mental health condition uh, possible to do well, to do it in recovery and to help others. And I know that's our goal in this podcast. And Eric, you have brought much to the conversation and really enriched it, brought a lot of knowledge and a lot of hope. And we just thank you so much for joining us today. You're so welcome. Thank you for your bravery and persistence. Y'all are um, to me, braver and my daughter and other people are than um, than myself, I think, in so many ways. So thank you. Thanks, Eric. Well, we really, really appreciate it. And uh, um, this, this subject of, of BPD is so vast and fast-breaking that we won't close, but rather stop for now. Um, Dr. Blaise Aguirre states his belief about recovery. He said, The person can recover if they can see their own greatness, that they are as essential to the universe as anyone else. I'd love that. And Marsha Linehan put it this way. It is hard to be happy without a life worth living. This is a fundamental tenet of DPT. What is important is that you experience your life as worth living, one that's satisfying and one that brings happiness. Now, from these two great experts who have helped thousands comes a beautiful message for every individual with BPD. It is what I wish for all of us who have it. And now, Valerie will lead us in a mindfulness exercise. Yes, I will. We will close this episode in our traditional way with a mindfulness exercise. And Marsha Linehan, who we have quoted a lot stresses the importance of mindfulness in the treatment of BPD. So I'm happy to close as we always do. And what is mindfulness? I always give a definition. Mindfulness is a mental state achieved by focusing one's awareness on the present moment while calmly acknowledging and accepting one's feelings, thoughts, and bodily sensations without judgment. Today's mindfulness practice is called Practicing Mindfulness and Self-Compassion. This is an ideal mindfulness practice for those of us who struggle to show ourselves compassion, even if we may be quick to extend compassion to others. It's also a great way to practice mindfulness by bringing awareness to emotions and staying in the moment with those emotions. So let's begin. Close your eyes if you can. Settle in and breathe. As always, let's begin with a few diaphragmatic breaths. Whether your eyes are open or closed, let's steady our breathing with two diaphragmatic breaths. When you do this on your own, take as many breaths as you need to become calm and centered. I usually take 10 diaphragmatic breaths to start my mindfulness and meditation practices. Let's breathe. Inhale through your nose, 
expanding that balloon in your stomach as you inhale. Hold it for a second or two. Exhale through your mouth, pulling in your stomach as you do, forcefully exhaling. Again, inhale through your nose, expanding that balloon in your stomach as you inhale. Exhale through your mouth, pulling in your stomach, forcefully exhaling. Pull your stomach all the way in. I keep this slow, steady breath going. Begin our self-compassion exercise by moving a hand to your chest or giving yourself a hug or resting your hands on your knees. Let's take an important step of acknowledging a difficulty in your life right now. Choose something that is not overwhelming. The aim here is not to become overwhelmed, but rather to acknowledge the difficulty as real while giving yourself permission to feel it. So what is something difficult but not overwhelming in your life right now? While holding this difficulty in mind, repeat the following statements out loud. This is difficult. Difficulty is part of being human. May I love and accept myself just as I am. Now continue to take a few slow, deep breaths and feel this self-compassion. Open your eyes or gently bring yourself back to the present. Look around the room, get settled, and thank you for doing this mindfulness exercise with me. Well, thank you, Valerie. Um, uh, it's, it's, it's interesting that it's something that we've, that we've focused on so much today as being part, just a critical part. Well, I guess the the very basic part of uh, of recovery in many people's estimation. Um, I also want to thank Eric for giving so much today. You are so generous at, with your with your knowledge and with your compassion and with your experience. And uh, I, I learned. I think we all learned a lot. And it was just you're just terrific. And I want to thank our audience for listening and giving us the chance to discuss BPD. Due to a phenomenal response to our first episode about aging and mental health, in our next episode, we'll continue the discussion with an expert on the impact of of aging on our mental health. So please join us for an eye-opening conversation. And until then, I leave you with our favorite word and Eric's, (laughs) onward.
Do you ever feel that calling that you should be doing more with your life? If you're unhappy with the status quo, I can help. My name is Elias Patras, and I'm an intuitive motivator, psychic medium, and motivational speaker. I know that feeling, and on my podcast, Your Inner Voice, I can help you answer that call to step into your life's purpose. I will show you how to recognize and listen to the signs and signals that are all around us and help you tap into your intuition. Join me for the show here on the mindbodyspirit.fm podcast network and wherever you get your podcasts. Let's connect, educate, and grow on this journey together.